Welcome to Alumni Voices, a podcast series from Oxford University. I'm Guy Collander, and every month I speak to a former student about their career and memories of their alma mater. In this podcast, we're going to diagnose the shocking problems with modern medicine and find out how they can be remedied. Our guide is Dr. Ben Goldacre, an indefatigable champion of evidence-based medicine and author of the bestsellers Bad Science and Bad Pharma. As a doctor, academic, campaigner and writer, he has emphasised the uses and misuses of science and statistics by journalists, politicians, drug companies and quacks. The self-confessed stats geek who studied medicine at Oxford University has now returned to Oxford where he is working on a project to improve the transparency of clinical trials and randomised experiments in social policy. Dr Ben Goldacre, thank you very much for taking time out from your busy schedule to join us. Hey, hi. Let's begin with your passion for improving clinical trials and evidence-based medicine. When did this emerge? Can it be traced back to a single incident or discovery of a single fact? I'm a second-generation epidemiologist, I guess, and my dad's an epidemiologist too. So these are things, to a certain extent, that I've been kind of talking and thinking about for a long time. There are lots of different types of doctor, right? And patients really vary in what kind of doctor they want. There are some doctors who are particularly good at containing anxiety, at listening. There are some doctors who are particularly good at the kind of railway modelling aspects of clinical practice. They tend to become surgeons. Um, And there are some doctors who are very preoccupied with evidence and what works. And, and, And I guess I fall particularly into the last camp. Although we present a public face of being this very um, scientific, perfect profession, in reality there are lots of gaps. Now, my, my personal view is that we've, we've had kind of phase one of the evidence-based medicine revolution. So we had Archie Cochrane, who came along in the 60s and 70s, and made himself very unpopular, really, by saying to all of the elderly bigwigs and grandees of medicine... Um, how do you know that, that your preferred way of operating on breast cancer is the best? And, and kind of forced people, often by being quite provocative, into um, having to do randomised trials, fair tests, to see which treatment worked the best. We're now at a state where we do trials fairly commonly, but a new set of shortcomings has arisen. So we have trials which are often flawed by design or they're too small and we also don't have a coherent information architecture around the trials that we do so trials routinely go missing in action their results are um, selectively withheld from doctors researchers and patients so trials with unflattering results are more likely to to go missing in action and all of these structural problems i think right now are relatively neglected and that makes no economic sense because We spend millions of pounds on each individual trial in order to get the most unbiased answer we possibly can about which treatment works best. But then we allow all of those biases to flood back in when we fail to properly aggregate the information and also to properly communicate it to decision makers. If you start from the position of a doctor who wants good quality evidence to help them make the right decision with their patient then once you start to push at the evidence, you rapidly start to see that there are gaps. And And did you find that when you were seeing patients in the consulting room? Yeah, absolutely. And, and, And once you start to notice that, then you start thinking, what would it take to fix this? And you start spotting the cultural barriers and the 
regulatory barriers. I mean, we face senseless regulations that prevent us doing uh, randomised controlled trials at low cost using routinely collected data in everyday clinical care, for example. Um, but also, where there are opportunities like that, that's where the action is in science, right? So it is around fixing the structural flaws in evidence-based medicine and the better use of data and the better production of data um, to help improve patient care. And this is all cumulative as well. And, of course, there are new challenges, health challenges that emerge, whether it's mental health or new, new diseases, Ebola at the moment. So I'm always on the lookout for canaries in the cage. My next book is on statins because... Statins are the single most commonly prescribed class of drug in the whole of the developed world. About 100 million people take a statin pill every morning. And yet there are still outstanding uncertainties about statins. Firstly, in public perception, if you look at headlines, you'll see one day the Daily Express, the People's Medical Journal, saying that statins are the most amazing thing since sliced bread. The next day they'll be telling you that statins are um, a hidden menace and a killer. So... If we can't get it right for statins, and there are actually genuine shortcomings in, in, in the evidence-based statins, I, they, they're better than nothing. For most people, it's in your interest to take a statin if you're above a certain risk threshold, but we still don't know which is the best statin treatment regime with sufficient certainty. We still don't know enough about the side effects, and there certainly haven't been sufficiently credible studies um, on side effects. We still don't communicate the evidence on um, risks and benefits of statins, adequately to patients on a routine basis to let them make informed decisions that reflect their own preferences. So statins, given that they are so commonly used, are a really good kind of uh, talking point, a really good illustration of the opportunities and the shortcomings in evidence-based medicine. Ebola is exactly the same thing. I just wrote with um, two colleagues here the background briefing for the World Health Organization's Um, meeting on how to improve rapid sharing of data and results in public health emergencies triggered by Ebola. And there have been huge problems with um, Ebola research not being disseminated in a sufficiently timely fashion. So while people are dying in large numbers, you have clinical trials that haven't reported their results. Now, there are huge numbers of reasons why that happens. Um, But one thing that I'm keen to try as a way of driving up standards around poor reporting of clinical trials is individual accountability, naming and identifying the individual trials that have transgressed these cultural norms. I'm building something called the Open Trials Database with colleagues at the Open Knowledge Foundation, and that's a a linked database of all publicly available structured data and documents on clinical trials. It's a kind of giant index, but it also reveals where things haven't been reported, and also where there are discrepancies in um, the, uh, pieces of information that have been reported about clinical trials. But as a, as a quick early illustration of the power of, of these kinds of live trackers, um, we've built an Ebola trials tracker. So we've identified all of the completed trials on Ebola, of which there are 13 on registers currently. We've identified those which have made their results publicly available, those that have published results which we can only find three, right? And then we've identified those which haven't, of which we can find ten. I think there are a lot of outstanding problems in medicine that have been left unfixed because of inertia, really. Um, There's a terrible, terrible problem of fake fixes Mm. in medicine, of people Mm. saying, oh, we've signed up to these guidelines, 
so why do you keep going on about this problem? We fixed it. And then you go, well, have you audited your compliance? Because it looks like you're still doing the bad thing that these guidelines are supposed mm-hmm. to fix. And I just, I, I, I really hope that, that holding individuals um, to account, as it were, um, will help to change that. Um, we will see. Um, mm-hmm. And that's just part of a, of a kind of wider um, group of activities that are all really around... Um, making better use of existing data. So taking the existing data and turning it into live services that change people's behaviour, give them give them better feedback on what they're doing. And we're working on stuff around prescribing, working on stuff around um, proper publication of trials research and lots of other bits and pieces. And especially with Ebola, a huge impact um, potentially now. Well, you've got to be quick. Um, now, I... I don't think you only have to be quick in public health emergencies, but um, in public health emergencies, it's really obvious to everyone that you have to be quick because yeah. large numbers of people are dying. And you're certainly pushing that transparency here, uh, working at the Nuffield Department of Primary Care Health Sciences Centre for Evidence-Based Medicine. And now coming back to your time at Oxford, where you studied uh, at Magdalen College for a degree in BA physiological sciences, what topics grabbed your attention then? So at the time, I desperately wanted to go and work in neuroscience. I actually rang up Colin Blamer <laughs> and said, look, I want to be like you when I grow up. What undergraduate degree should I do? And he said, you should do medicine because medicine gives you the, the kind of greatest, the broadest grounding in, in the biomedical sciences. And so what did you gain from that, um, that tutorial system? There is something about people who who just live and breathe their nerdy enthusiasm. And that's what you got at Oxford? That's what you see in the tutorial system, yeah. And that's what you see with Oxford tutors, is people who, uh, for the most part, as far as I can tell, and being on the other side of it now, <laughs> I think it's broadly true, um, people who aren't serving their time, they're not, they're not going, well, I've got to put bread on the table, so I'd better deliver yet another biochemistry lecture. Um, it's people who are fully integrated, who live and breathe this stuff. And I think, um, I think that makes a difference. And I think being around that's really important. And your enthusiasm really comes across, especially at the, the Harms and Healthcare event uh, as part of the Alumni Weekend, to a sell-out audience there. And you were very direct with your language, and you always are. You said then, we have to give the best currently available treatment. We kill people when we continue to practice with a veil of ignorance. Do you think the majority of doctors and academics are too meek when it comes to challenging the status quo? I'm not sure it comes from meekness. I think it comes from um, the fact that fixing these kinds of structural problems in healthcare has not been regarded as a profession. If you want to fix structural problems in healthcare, like people failing to report the results of clinical trials, then you have to employ people whose job it is to assess the shortcomings in reporting, to assess compliance in journals and sponsors who claim that they're setting out to fix these things, to ensure that all trialists are aware of their obligations to register and publish results, to run randomised trials to see what's the best way of making sure that individual researchers know about their obligations to register and publish trials. And you've been bridging um, that gap between academia and the, the popular side with your columns, Bad Science for the Guardian, with your bestsellers, Bad Science, Bad Pharma. But what are the, the prospects for evidence-based medicine? I think there are huge opportunities, as I said 
at the beginning with um, with better use of um, digital tools to embed good quality randomised trials in routine clinical practice, better digital tools to synthesise evidence, get it out to the right person at the right time, address information overload for clinicians and patients, which is better thought of, I think, as filter failure, because that shows you what the active thing you need to do is, better filters, Um, and also better systems in place to audit the extent to which that evidence has been implemented. You know, it's all doable, and there's a clear case to be made. I think the main problem is it doesn't fit into any of the current standard boxes around the kind of stuff that gets funding. So all of the kind of stuff that I will be launching over the next 12 to 18 months are all things which have, I think, pretty high impact, but prove nearly unfundable under the conventional funding arrangements that say if you're doing some laboratory stuff then that's great if you're running a trial then that's great but for some reason the supporting tissue around all trials um, doesn't get the same uh, funding and doesn't get the same kind of gut feeling but I I, I honestly think that's a generational issue you know I think um, my generation of doctors and below understand the importance of better data they understand the importance of evidence-based practice, and I think uh, I think we'll see a sea change. Um, and I think the battles along the way are kind of what makes it fun. They're also what makes it eye-catching for the outside world. You know, um, I think there's a very bright future ahead. So the tools are there, the interests there, and now it's just a question of that that cultural change. Yeah, and you know, I think um, there's a lot of people around and who are interested in this stuff. I think working together is the way forward. And final quick question. Your research shows us we should be sceptical about so-called miracle cures, but as a doctor with vast experience of what works, what doesn't, could you give us a few tips for healthy living? No. And I'll tell you why not. <laughs> I t- I, seriously, I, uh, you know, the, um, the world is absolutely overflowing with media doctors who want to tell you how to live, and um, that's fine if they want to do that but I would literally slam my face in the door I, you know I um, I think it's okay to be somebody who talks to the public about how do we know if something works or doesn't work and I have I have um, I've held the line for 15 years now to avoid being somebody who gives a canon gives a, a list of things that are good for you and bad for you and um, And uh, it's very kind of you to ask, but I won't start now. Dr. Ben Goldacre, thank you very much for dissecting what's wrong with medicine and showing us that we need to follow the evidence. For other episodes of Alumni Voices and for more information about the Alumni Office, please visit www.alumni.ox.ac.au.